Welcome to the latest episode of the Downtown Den podcast. It's uh, episode five of series two. And of course, in this season, we've been talking to uh, leading female business leaders, politicians, and delighted to have an absolute legend of a Liverpool entrepreneur with me today. It's Kate Stewart. Lovely to see you, Kate. Thanks for having me, Frank. Yeah, thanks for being in the den. I know, um, I'm so excited. So, listen, we've got loads to talk about with you because you've had a fascinating journey in terms of your particular career. And what we've been talking to other females about during this series is, you know, how it all started, what your background was. Um, obviously, you were born in Clover and you silver spoon. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't be further from the truth, Frank. Let's start in school. So, so what was school like for you? School, I was clever, but I just didn't respond to the education system. So I'd be sitting in class, the teacher would be twittering on at the front about algebra, about formulas, and my mind would go somewhere else and I'd start messing around, get through out of the class and end up in the bushes smoking. That was, that was the whole top and bottom of it. So I didn't want, from 13, I worked on a burger van on Matthew Street. I worked there till 4am and then I'd go home, have a couple of hours sleep, get up and go to school. I always wanted to earn money from an early age. So I've always had a good worth ethic in me. I know that I've got to get off my backside and earn from 13. And one of the very first docu documentaries that was ever made in Liverpool was about the burger van on Matty Street and about me. It was called um, Grafters. And I'd done a show, and that was massively controversial. At the time, everyone was ringing up Radio Merseyside to say, that's disgusting, and she shouldn't be working. It was like, well, we were from a normal working-class background. We got what my family could afford, but I always wanted more. So it was just like, well, if you want a girl, get out there and get it yourself, and it did. So, yeah, school... Yeah, I just didn't respond to the education system whatsoever. And I was always, always in trouble. And when I look back now, it was because I was bored. We all learn in different ways. And I think I've got a touch of ADHD. I can't concentrate on something too long. And there was nothing, there was nothing in place for anything like that then. So I made a decision, well, probably the school made a decision that they didn't want me there anymore. It was just easier to get rid of me. So I went and got a job. My first job was in the Adelphi Hotel cleaning and I got £1.70 an hour and they were absolutely horrible to us. Um, How old were you by this stage? 15. 15. Yeah, 15. And then I'd done the Marriott when that was opening. I went and cleaned that. And then I got a job on Church Street in Fairsport and it was like, I couldn't believe it. It was £2.50 an hour. It was like I'd won the lottery. I was like, oh, I've made it. I've really made it. Um, and I worked there and then 17 so yeah I had no qualifications I think I'd already earned like something towards a GCSE in drama obviously good old drama queen yeah um, and do you know what friend the thing I was good at was textiles but not that it's ever made any difference in my life but yeah no qualifications got pregnant at 17 and it was just like a bomb had gone off with the family they were like you know what are you going to do? And there was no question about like keeping it or anything. That was, you had, to, you had to keep it. And I think everyone expected the writing to be on the wall for me that I wasn't going to amount to nothing. I probably wanted to have more kids, claim benefits. And that's what 
without sounding disrespectful, but that's what happened where we were from on the estate. People just, you know, there wasn't many aspirations. No one, no one went to university. No one went on to have careers. It was just like, you had kids probably claim benefits and watch Jeremy Kyle in the morning. Um, and I decided that I didn't want that life. I didn't want that for me little girl neither. So I parted ways with a dad. He was, I'm not going into that one, but um, yeah, we parted ways and I was a single parent and I remember getting milk tokens and having to go and queue up with this milk token to get baby formula. And I thought, do you know what? I'm fully able to work. There is nothing wrong with me. Why am I doing this? Why am I standing with a milk token with my hands out? So I was like, okay, what can I do? And there was this groundbreaking moment that I'll never forget. Electricity tokens, you just put them in with a fiver. And um, the lucky went and I'd used the emergency and I had a pound. And I was like, oh God, I, got, I can't get nothing with a pound. I got the baby in bed with me. And I hate, still to this day, I hate asking anyone for money or asking anyone for anything. It actually kills me. I can't do it. I'd rather, I'd rather do anything than do that. And I was like, right, that is it. it things are changing. So I got in touch with um, the local college and was like, what's available to me? What can I do? And I went and trained as a beautician. And then being who I am, I always push everything to the limit, didn't I? I was still waxing people's private parts at 10 o'clock on the night for like £7.50. But it was like every one of them, £7.50s count. Um, yeah, so then I was working in a sunbed shop and started making a little bit of money. I went, I was one of the first people to go and train with Sandra Pay when it come out down in London. I got my parents to pay for that course for me, for my 21st birthday. It was about 400 quid. And then... Um, yeah, I was like, oh, you know, I'm the first to do it. Ugh. When you look back now, I'm standing there rubbing people up and down. And there's a story that I won't go into. I'll tell you when I'm off tape. Um, but yeah. And then I heard that this guy was coming down from London who was creating the Camden of the North. And I was like, I was so intrigued by it. Like, you go past Stanley Dock and you think, wow, what? So iconic to our city. So I went in there and I was like, you know, is there any chance of a job? And he told me to F off and get out. I was just like, gee, bastard, how dare he say that to me? Where I think most people would have like shied away and said, I'm never going back there. And I was like, you see, think he is coming up to Liverpool telling me to get lost now. So I went back again. I went back again. I just do ringing and say, is there any job? Yes. And in the end, he said to me, and he was absolutely taking the mickey, by the way. He was like, well, I'll tell you what, then you can go and be an elf. And I was like, Sounds, give me the question then. And I had to dress up as an elf and go and stand in the grotto in Stanley Dock, which is probably the coldest place on this earth, by the way. It's absolutely freezing. I was dithering and I was like, and he said, you know what, girl, for doing that, you, you can have a start. And I started as a receptionist, just answering the phones. Then I got put over in the cash office, dealing with all the money sides, making all the rents. And the best way I learned was watching his mistakes, really. Like he, he messed up big time. He had a problem with drink, so he was never there. And I was just threw in at the deep end. I was this, you know, five foot one scouser, like without any education, being thrown in and having to deal with hundreds and hundreds of traders. And I was like, okay, 
I just stepped into the role, didn't I? Um, and within four years, I got the contract to run the place um, off a company down in London who owned the building. So that's the market down at Stanley Dock. So yeah. it was the whole lease on the whole site. Yeah. Um, they were like, he was going and they needed something to do with the building. So I had to go down to London and I had to sit in front of three very, very wealthy Jewish men who couldn't understand the words I said. But when I started doing the PowerPoint presentation and I started doing numbers, because he probably thought, who the hell is this girl walking in? She's got big, massive boobs. She can't talk properly. <laughs> can't understand a word she's saying. Um, and she's coming in and she's young. And she's coming in asking us for like a £35 million site. But when I started talking numbers, you could see them sitting up in the seat as if to say, oh God, she knows what she's talking about here. I'd really, really practised this, um, what I was doing. And I was nervous. My heart was pounding in my chest. And I was thinking, do not let them shout to say that you're nervous. Because I've always had this thing that when I'm, going to do something, I'll step into a role when I need to be. And I know it's quite going to be, everyone's going to go, well, why? But Margaret Thatcher, I, if I, I'm scared, I step into that role because, you know, she was formidable, wasn't she? She didn't give a shit. And I was standing at the front thinking, oh, please God, please God, please God. I think I had my fingers crossed at one point. Um, and I'd done the presentation and you could see them, like, you know, thinking she knows what she's talking about. And by the end of it, they were like, okay, we'll give you the go. Did I get pissed after that? Yes, I did. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And so what was the, the actual role? It was basically running that market for them, was it? No, that... it was, so I got given control of the whole of the site, Frank. Okay. Um, it wasn't because the market was only really operational in Tobacco Warehouse, South Warehouse and the Annex, but I had control over where the Titanic Hotel and that is as now. So basically, I had to look after everything for them. They were in London. They didn't want anything to do with this property that they've got in Liverpool. Just basically, you deal with it. So I was like, I'm quite happy to crack on. I didn't, I think I had in, at about six years, I think I had about four conversations with them, to be honest. Um, they didn't want the hassle. They didn't want the problems. They were just waiting for the planning game and to sell it on. That was always their plan. But it had to be operational. So, yeah, so when I took over, it was absolutely saturated in counterfeit. Like, we, the raids had already started before. What happened was when Liverpool 1 was getting built, Trading Standards got massive amounts of money off designers to get rid of the counterfeit in this city because they were saying, you know, well, no one's going to come. If you can go to the heritage market and buy the same item for like three quid that we're charging £200 for, who'd want to take one of these units? So, yeah, there was massive investments and we got hammered. They'd send 40-foot trucks down with the police and just empty the place. I think it's a little bit what's going on now in Manchester by... Yeah, by the uh, prison. By the prison, yeah. 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 So that was us. That was that down at the dock. And I remember this guy come... And the money was astronomical what was being made out of this counterfeit. It was more than what drug dealers made. So they wanted to keep a hold on it. And we were told, this is when I worked for Frank Tuck, I think we got told we were going to get done with money laundering because we were taking the money from them. And, and so I think he was just glad to be out of there and panting over to me, actually. Just like, yeah, you deal with it. I was like, oh, cracker. <laughs> Amazing. Um, and it was hard, Frank. These are all, you know, Tough guys, and I'd have to stand on the gate and say, You're not coming in. 
I got threatened. They could have made me house down. It's like, but you know what? If you were going to do it, you wouldn't be telling me because if something happens to me, I know where to come. And I think that's why being streetwise and being from a council estate has helped me so much because a normal businesswoman who's been to university, she probably would have run a mile and be like, I'm not doing that. But where I'm not a scally, I was like stood on the front, like, I don't care, you're not getting on. What are you going to do about Fronted it? Fronted it up. Yeah. And I, you know, I because I had come from the background it did, I knew, knew people in the city. Um, you know, I can call on for a little bit of help. And I'm not ashamed of that. You know, this, even to this day, it gets, oh, she used to go with him and she's done this. It's like, piss off. Leave me alone. But we'll get on to that a bit further down in the story. Um, yeah, so I had this site and it was only utilised on a Sunday. Once all the counterfeit traders had gone, we were left with probably 60 out of hundreds. So I was like, you know, I've got to got to do something and market traders are like dinosaurs they hate change you tell them like you know we're not going to do this no that's it we're protesting it's like oh god so i had to do it in a way to make them feel involved and also things are moving on when they first started at the heritage market there was just there was no sunday trading no Things changed, like the Primark was open, everything was going online. It As was you like, say, Liverpool one was coming on stream. Yeah, it was like, we have to change or we're going we're gonna to die. Is it all going to sink and there's going to be nothing left for us? So I'd done some initiatives with entrepreneurs saying, come down, you can have free source. Um, you know, you've got, you're not signing into the lease, you haven't got rent, you haven't got business rates, come down. Got in touch with all the universities and the colleges, people who were makers, tried to get them involved. And it did, it's done really, really well. And what the traders learned was, like, we'd done big deals with the radio stations. We had the radio stations broadcasting from down there. And what they learned is without them, they could actually stood the chance because people were more interested in their goods without all the counterfeit there. Um, and then I was like, well, what am I going to do with the site on all the other days? It's not just a Sunday thing. So I reopened the Hard Duck nightclub. So all the rave sound there, like, and now this is really at the forefront. I think I was a little bit ahead of my time. Um, the word I was raised, they were just unbelievable. And the police were happy. I've worked with the licensing police anyway. They were happy knowing that they didn't get no bother out of us. And that goes with everything. As long as people are, you're not bothering people, everyone leaves it alone. And then I got in touch with the Liverpool Film Office and was like, you know, do you know we have this space and we have that space? And invited them all in to come and look around and got in touch with loads of location managers to say, come and look what you've got. It's on an open day. And the next minute, you've got the likes of Captain America being filmed there, Sherlock Holmes. I'm sitting in my office and here's Jude Law walking past the window. I'm like, cheers, Jude. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we really utilised the site as best we could. Hollyoaks were just there all the time. Loads of commercials. Did I enjoy it? I absolutely loved it. I would go on holiday and couldn't wait to get back to work. That's how you know you're in the right job. Um so as it's progressed, we get down the line and then I work closely with the war councillors and stuff and the mayor at the time, they were like, hey, we need, we need the, the development to go ahead. So I was like, okay, fine. Let me take it somewhere else so the traders are protected and I'm happy to go. You know, I know I can do it from anywhere. So I found a site facing Brunswick train station. It was promised. I know, like, it's done. What year is that? 2012. So how 
many years have you been developing that heritage market and getting it to the place where you've got it? From 2008 till 2012. So four years? Yeah. So blood, sweat and tears, I guess, yeah? Sometimes, Frank, I wouldn't go home for two days. I would be have a Sunday market and it'd be a bank holiday weekend. We'd go straight into the raves and that would finish at like five o'clock in the morning and then we'd have some filament to do. I would literally sleep in my chair for a couple of hours, jump back up. But my adrenaline was pumping that much that I wasn't bothered about sleep. Sleep was the last thing on my mind. I was just like, right, let's get this done. And if there's a true saying, if while the cat's away, the mouse will play. And if you are not there, it will not be done because people will slack and people will not do it how you want them to do. So it was blood, sweat, tears, sacrifice, missing my daughter a lot of the time because I wasn't at home. I was have to get a mind. So, yeah, I'd pour everything into it, absolutely everything. So when I understood as well, Cairdale needed that development to happen. The building was getting run down. I wasn't doing, I couldn't do the maintenance mm-hmm. all the time. So there was water leaking and stuff. Because just to, for people outside of the city who don't know, this is a massive building, right? This the is the biggest like, brick building in the world. We're not talking about a semi-detached property here. Twelve and a half acres, biggest brick building in the world. I can go into the history and boys if you want, but have a look. I mean, in the Second World War, it was used as the American base, the American Army base. President Roosevelt's wife, there's pictures of her going round Stanley Dock in trucks. The basement was used as a morgue. Oh, that's another thing that's done a soft Jim Gilson's down there. Whoa. <laughs> um, we had most haunted live filling there. Oh. They got put themselves in coffins and that. And I'm, I'm a big scaredy cat as well. I'm like, oh, God. And I was quite evil sometimes. And they were doing ghost hunts. And we'd, I'd say, come on, let's go down and hide and throw things. And that did all really... um, But yeah, it was an amazing time in my life. And I knew that I had, I, I had nailed it, Frank. I really had nailed it. Everyone was really excited. Instead of saying, you know, making it a bad thing. I made it as a positive and sold it as like, come on, it's now time to move on to a new adventure, new site. It'll be so much easier as well because the building, you'd, you'd patch up one thing and the next minute it just moves somewhere else. And it was, it was a bit of a, a nightmare in that sense. So I was like, right, it made it like a big, really sold the dream. We're going to go to this new building. It's going to be amazing. We're going to develop. We're going to do on Because I built a thing, a platform as well. So even while the market wasn't on, People could online shop, so you would go on it, it'd be like a virtual thing. So you click on the link, see what they sold, and shop oh, as well. That was miles ahead of its time. Absolutely. So everyone would have their own shop and their own link ads. Oh god. I'd done it all. I was like, this was so exciting. And I was open on Friday, Saturday, Sunday as well. So get the tourism in. The tourists are the ones with money in the pocket. So we were aiming at them, get them in. It was a unique market, you know, and buy a piece of Liverpool to take away with you. The cruise ships were starting to come in. It was just like, let's utilise that. Done it all. Done the deal with the guy who owned the building. Um, It got approved for planning to be put forward forward to the committee. And it wasn't even the 11th hour. It was after 12. Got a phone call saying, you're not getting the planning. I was like, no way. I've never felt sick so much in my whole life. I was just like, what? They were like, no. Um, there was someone who was on that estate and he had a bit of pull and he was just like, I'm not having it. I'm not having it there. I was just like, 
we had car parking. It was just the perfect site. The train station was outside. And I think I just lost all faith then. I was just like, you are kidding me. I looked around at other sites and there was just none that suited us. They were all outdoors or they just weren't suitable, Frank. So I just felt like I'd been, I'd been turned over. I was just like... Kicking the teeth. I had no teeth left. <laughs> I've got, I was gummy. I was just like... Ugh. Um, and I think I had to then go to the traces and say, and I felt like I'd let them down massively. I'd said to them, come on, you know, pack your stuff up. We're launching on this day. We actually had to launch date and everything. Frank, that's how... The, this is a problem with what's going on now with, with councils, isn't it? You know. And one of my true sayings is now that I have learned, do not count your chickens till they are hatched. And I tell my kids that all the time. No, don't. Don't. Until them chickens are out them eggs, do not say how many you've got. Because I was made to look a fool. I felt like I'd con the traders to get out of there. And they was, they were, there was rumours going around. I, I got money to get them out. No, I didn't. I lost so much money. I'd even paid for the bloody sign to go up. I paid 15,000 for this sign to be made. That was all singing and dancing. And I am one of them people. If I say I'm going to do something, I will do it. So that was like a really big, yeah, it was. And, and in terms of the, in terms of the site, in terms of the heritage market site, the original site, again, just for those outside of uh, Liverpool, what then? transformed in that re re regard oh so it's now a hotel um, the titanic the titanic hotel which is hugely successful in the city all the apartments are on sale now so it's regenerated that area i think because of that development then you know you've got everton stadiums that's going up down there you've got 10 streets it needed it frank mm. it really really did uh, and you know just in terms of reflecting on part you played in that because obviously you will be frustrated and we'll talk a little bit more about you know the sort of what happens next but nonetheless potentially that building could have fallen into an even greater state of disrepair absolutely the whole area actually was quite derelict and only for the activity that you were undertaking nobody would have ever gone near the place yeah. so i would say you know, you should look at that and, okay, I appreciate what happened subsequently wasn't great for you. But for the area, it's just now it's going to be part of Liverpool's next phase of regeneration. It's phenomenal. I think as well, all the plans have come out about the whole new waterfront. But as it's great, from that perspective, it was a long way away and I had a duty of responsibility to these market traders. I felt like I'd flag them and let them down. You know, I was so sure that I was getting it because I put my trust into people. And I was only 26. Would I have done it differently? Would I? Absolutely. Without saying any naughty words, I would have done it so differently. It's unbelievable because I'm more mature now. I'm more savvy. I got, I was naive. Yeah. But on the positive note, it is amazing what's happening down there. And the traders did get some investment for the new Great Homer Street. And I did consult on that as well and say, this is what you need to do. And for free, you know, I did have a say in that. Well, but that was the close of that chapter. And on to the next. Well, we're going to get into the next chapter in a sec. But I just want to reflect, pause for a second. 
in terms of some of the things that you said about when you were at school and you know i think sadly we're still making these mistakes now so we're a lot more alive now to things like adhd dyslexia yeah and obviously you would anticipate uh, that schools that teachers are going to be able to cope with that a little better and the support a bit better um unfortunately the curriculum when i was at school never mind when you was at school hasn't changed much of at all and you said something almost in passing there which fascinates me about the conversation I've had with lots of successful entrepreneurs and people who have gone into either business or politics and done a really good job you were good at drama yeah and it's something i did at school bizarrely when going to why um and i just think that if we spent a little bit more time in identifying the people had the talent in performing arts whether it be singing dancing whether they have the ability to just stand up in front of an audience and speak we get far more money sorry far better return for our book in terms of the people that were turning around to schools rather than this idea well they didn't get an a to c in maths or english so they're on the they're on the scrappy I think as well when children aren't performing, it's all about the tables as well with schools, Frank. So they are not giving attention. It's like, yeah. well, you're not going to get us anyway. So get it's tick boxes, isn't it? Which Absolutely. is not the teacher's fault, but no, it's that's not. the pressure they're on. The yeah. pressure under pressure from central government, and that is just the way of the world. They don't identify people's creativity. That's just not part of the the process at schools. And, and do you look back at school and think, I oh, wish somebody would have just seen that? talented in drama and push me a little bit in that direction absolutely because if i was more educated i would have went so much further as well um because i'm not i mean I that's just, quite frightening to think you've gone yeah. further but yeah, yeah i know yeah. what you're saying um but, the, but the drama thing i mean again serious point here that you know when you said to me so did drama as i say you sort of said it in passing and then a few minutes later you're talking about a time you've gone to london and you've presented in front of three must have seemed to you you know quite an intimidating environment but you've taken on this is what you said i take on a, a different persona i take on a role mm. and i was sort of marked with patchy for that that's the drama coming yeah, out isn't it, it is yeah you're right you know, so i've never and, thought of that and it's such a fantastic thing is drama you know because i as i say i did it almost by accident as an option in school and i look back now and i think i would i'm so weak quite a confident kid yeah. but that just gives you that little bit more confidence it gives you an opportunity to perform in front of people and as i say i think it's an underestimated skill an underestimated subject all kids should have to do that in my opinion a bit well, of drama i'd rather do we kids do drama than are yeah absolutely <laughs> like i don't think i ever went to one re lesson i think it's like every single one um but do you know what frank can i just bring something up here which is quite bizarre i used to sag off school right but i do you know what i've done and this is on my four children to the universe on their lives i used to sag off school and get the bus the tour bus around chester and learn about things like that i sagged off and used to go the maritime museum i loved history i still do like it's a passion i wasn't i knew i wasn't one of them that wanted to just hang around corners mm. i did want to do things i just wasn't given the opportunity to do it what we're saying you know and i used to love 
I was always confident. I was doing telly shows when I was 13, TV programs. I was confident, but yeah, it needs totally, totally redoing. Today, um, I just went back and done a, a program on Channel 4 or Channel 5, I can't remember, called Secret Teacher, where, where I went undercover into the school. And wow, was that eye opener. And we're going to talk about that in the second part of this podcast. Before we do that, though, we're going to find out what Auntie Kate Stewart wants that dream of the Kirkdale market didn't come to fruition because that might have been a bit of a blow for you. But uh, you've gone on and done other things, haven't you? Certainly have. So we'll talk about that in a sec. Stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. It's Downtown Den podcast with Kate Stewart. Hi, this is Frank McKenna, the Chief Executive and Group Chairman of Downtown in Business. I'm really excited to announce that in March 2023, we'll be hosting a national conference, Changemakers Live, at the Knowledge Quarter, Liverpool, at the Spine Building, the award-winning Spine Building. And we'll be welcoming a host of fabulous speakers, including the Shadow Health Minister, Wes Streeting, the mastermind behind HS2, Lord Andrew Adonis, Ryan Wayne, who's the Head of Policy at the Tony Blair Institute, Colin Sinclair, the Chief Executive of the Knowledge Quarter, Jessica Bowles, she's the Strategic Director for Property Giant Bruntwood, and Social Media Guru, and so much besides, Chrissy Wolf. They'll be among a number of speakers who'll be talking about the challenges and hopefully coming up with some solutions to those challenges that we all face in the business community in 2023 and no doubt we'll face those challenges beyond. Join us for what we think is going to be an amazing day of discussion and debate where we'll be asking, so what's the big idea? Go to all the W's downtowninbusiness.com to book your tickets today. Welcome back to part two of our Downtown Dead podcast. I'm with Liverpool entrepreneur Kate Stewart, who's been telling us about um, some trials and tribulations she had with the Liverpool City Council Planning Department. Who'd have thought it? <laughs> and uh, and um, obviously the disappointment of your dream for a new market to be developed in a different part of the city after you had totally transformed the heritage market into a hugely successful story, not just for you and the people who were there, but for the city as well. So that disappointment happens. You're 26 at this point. Would be easy, I would have thought, to look at that disappointment, look at the people who'd let you down and think, you know what, bugger this. This is too hard. I'm just going to go and work for someone else again and make life easier for myself. But obviously that's not in your nature. So what happens next, Katie? Dust yourself off and try and try and try again. I was, do you know what? After that, I think for about six months, I suffered from depression because it was just like so let down. And I hated letting people down as well, giving them my words and not being able to deliver. Was it, were you more disappointed with yourself or you were more angry with the people who'd let you down? What was the sort of feeling? 50-50. I hated Liverpool City Council for the time, like, it was my arch enemy. Like, literally, I couldn't believe it. Um, being a Labour council as well, we for the people. 
that's what we're here to do is to make the city better. I was doing it, offering them this massive tourist destination. And I was helping people as well. You know, I was, I've always worked with women and I was give any new business owner you know, three months free rent down. I was teaching them as well and mentoring them. And as we've just said, I had done good things because having those big movies in the city had a knock on effect right the way through the city. It brought millions and millions of pounds in. But yeah, I was, so I was disappointed with myself and I had a massive issue with Liverpool City Council for a long time as well. I wouldn't work with them. I was like, you know. But you'd have to, that's the thing about being an entrepreneur. You have to dust yourself off. You have to try again and you have to be ready to change at any given moment. So yeah, I had to wash my face, get back up, put my makeup back on and get back out there. And I got back in, I went back out there into property and I found a little thing that was happening as well. Pubs were getting sold off by breweries and they all had lands with them. They all had big car parks and stuff. So I was doing deals with the likes of Punch Taverns. I was getting them for pennies, absolutely pennies, and just keeping hold of them. Didn't have mortgages on them neither. So that was a little bit of a niche that I found. Um, I mean, some sites I was getting for 20 grand. Literally, just let my belly rumble again. I fast, <laughs> you see, till one o'clock. <laughs> um, let me just ask you this though you know so you're still 26 at this point. now i'm older actually okay. i took control of the head as a 26 i was probably oh, that can't count um just went to match in case <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was probably about 30 now okay so you're, yeah. you're 30 so you're still sort of well you're still young uh, you're still young now but you're certainly young then oh thanks it's made my dad and you um what makes you just sit there one day and think, actually, do you know what? Loads of these pubs getting sold. I'm going to go and buy some. I don't know. I am just, I think, number one, I'm a nosy get. So I'm always looking for opportunities. I'm a hustler. That's what I, I am. You know, it's like, what's next? Where I'm always hungry for something else. I'm never content. I'm never just sit there and think. So I was looking at what was happening across the city. My mum and dad had pubs. Um... And I'd just seen an opportunity and thought, you know what, I'm going to go for it. I did have money put away from the heritage. Um, I'd say I'm a saver, you know. I know. Um, I was on. Do you know what? I'll I'll be totally honest with you. I had too much, too young, and uneducated as well. I blew so much money. It was unbelievable. It was like I was on footballers' wages, twenty six, and I had a ball. I'm glad I done it. Yeah, I am. But anyway, I did put some away. And that's when I got bought sites. And then I started buying property um, and got into developing. That was my next little chapter. And again, do you know what? At a disadvantage as well. I've always been in men's worlds. And I'll give you a great example. I had a business manager who worked for me. 60 yards. Every day he walked into work with his shirt tie briefcase very well-spoken, very educated. And we'd go into boardroom meetings and I'd be ignored and everyone would go to John, shake his hand, and I'd just stay very quiet and think, I'm going I'm to annihilate you in a minute. <laughs> um, yeah, so in men's world, again, in property, 
working with builders, working with architects, if it hits a man's wheels again. And I've been ignored so many times and, you know, everyone's gone to John and I've just sat there very quietly and gone, okay, so do we want to get to work? And they'd be like, yeah, so John, what's first on the agenda? I'd be like, they'd like, like look at me and I'd say, well, first and foremost, I think you all should know I'm the gaffer here, <laughs> you know. Um, but it's been hard, Frank. It really has. I think as my times are moving on, when I first started out in business, it was, there weren't no women leaders. There wasn't. I think I was probably one of the first entrepreneurs to really break out in Liverpool. As times have gone on, it's still difficult. It really, really is, yeah. So going into it, I must be a lot of a punishment because I keep choosing these male-dominated <laughs> industries. Um, there's not many that aren't, though, are there? Really? No, there's absolutely not. And I have so many times been in meetings and they're coming out with all these big, massive words. I am just, you know... Yeah, what you see is what you get with me. I'm being under the table, Googling what it means and just like nodding, you know. Um, but yeah, I have struggled massively, got into property. I've had the kecks had off me so many times by builders who have been little sharks. And I've had to learn and think and be quick on my feet and employ people. I mean, I don't know. I don't know much, to be honest. Sometimes I think, what do you know, Case? Um, but you employ people who do now about things done the property thing and then the standing come on the market and i've seen another opportunity there and so again let's just explain to those people who don't know uh the sandin is a pub by this terribly shitty football <laughs> ground called anfield um, um, it was your bed, and, <laughs> and um and so uh, you can say, well, I see, you see, if you don't know, yeah, you can say, oh, I've seen this pub called The Sander and people go, but The Sander. It's a complex. It wasn't just one pub. It's a whole block of pubs, um, underutilised, loads of space. And Liverpool, there was talk of Liverpool maybe moving at the time. And gut instincts, I just thought they're not going anywhere. Let's get it while we can. Got it at a cheaper price. And so, yeah, it's huge. So it's the birthplace of Liverpool Football Club and the other one over the other side of Stanley Park. <laughs> yeah. um, massive amounts of history. And I just thought, you know what? I'm going to get my teeth into this. But let's just go back to the bit personal life. Three babies in 12 months. Yeah, who does that? <laughs> Me! I had twins in 2015 and I had another baby in 2016. So we did three, three, three babies in 12 months. <laughs> and I bought the Sandin in January 2017. <laughs> it's just all like self-harm, isn't it really? Um, yeah, bugger for punishment. Oh, yeah. Do you know if I'm not, if I haven't got loads of chaos, I don't know what to do with myself. If I'm not absolutely pulling my hair out, I, I don't enjoy it. But anyway, yeah. Got straight in there, ripped her out, redone it. Partner of LFC to do their hospitality for them. Um, seen space, seen another gap in the market, done a hotel there. Um, and how many people do you get in that sand on a, a typical match then? Probably about 5,000. 5,000 people. I mean, just as I say, just to give people the, the scale yeah. of, of this operation that you undertook. And again, you know, people look now and say, 
oh, well, of course, that was going to work because it's right by Anfield. But the point you made, Liverpool were talking about moving ground at that stage, and you've looked, and instinct's gone. They ain't going to move. And ultimately, even if they had moved, there'd still be an opportunity to utilise that place because of its history, wouldn't it? Absolutely. If they moved, I'd have gone in and moved in on getting that place as well, to be quite honest. And you've got the relationship with the club by this time. Um, So 5,000 people on a match day. Yeah, it's absolutely rammed. And I know a lot of the ex-players go in there and do talks and all that sort of stuff, don't they? So it's it's a big part of the match day experience now for a lot of Liverpool supporters. Again, I'll go back to this, it's a tourist destination. We don't get the scouts in really. We get the people who are die-hard Liverpool fans and the Norwegians. The We get all over the world. There's so many. Every corner of the world. I mean, even down to the Champions League final, I had people fly in from Australia to watch the game at the birthplace of LFC. It's just phenomenal. Um, yeah, it's been... Do you know what though, Frank? You say we have 5,000 people in there. Do you know, touch wood, I never had one bit of bother in there in the whole time I've owned it. It's just people coming together for the love of football. We have the singers on from Boss Night singing all the songs. And do you know what? It's just electric. I go in there and think, wow, it is. And we have to develop. We have to change all the time. What can we do next? Never, ever stand still in business because you become stale. Um, So I've just put the biggest outdoor screen in the city in the car park it's absolutely amazing so we've done another area we've done a fan zone which i'm just in the middle of doing now um so we'll be putting some containers down there like a little bit of a box park inviting different businesses in there to rent them off us so there's a big food choice the area is up and coming. Liverpool have just put another stand on. So it's just like, okay. I'm not, I did put it off for sale, you know, but I'll go into that in a minute. So, yeah. So I just finished spending a million pounds on a hotel. All proud of myself, like walking through the corridor thinking, oh, tap on the back, Kate. What happened to me? Lockdown. <laughs> Couldn't yeah. write it. It's, uh, yeah. I mean, that's something obviously that impacted on all of us, but for people who are in the hospitality sector, it was devastating, wasn't it? And I was talking to hotel chains who, you know, with due respect to independents, these guys have got deep pockets, they've Mm -hmm. got really great relationships with banks, global financial institutions, whereas a lot of the indies were sort of not getting an awful lot of help from government, and not getting a lot of support from anywhere else, to be fair. So, 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 what during that period? What, what were you thinking? Is that is that when you put it off for sale? Or? After it, yeah, yeah, I was so disheartened by the way the hospitality sector were treated mm. right across the board. It was pathetic, Frank. At one point, you could open, but if you had a pie in front of you, you could have a pint. But then, if you didn't have the pie, you couldn't have a pint. Then COVID went to bed. Ah. Kofa come out at 10 o'clock to the Tahir at 10, but it wasn't, it was just, I just couldn't understand it. And I, honestly. Kofa come out at 10. Yeah. What's like, that when you look back? And listen, I, I don't really want to get into, you know, big argument with people over COVID because I know people lost loved ones. I understand that people have still got long COVID and are suffering health consequences. 
But I defy anyone to look back at that period of time and tell me that those rules made any fucking sense. Not one. It was an absolute joke. The money that was wasted. Them in Westminster are all sitting there partying while we're all locked up. As you've just said, people are dying. You couldn't see your loved ones. God forbid. It was just... And so it shows you what a piss take it was when they're all having a party down there and we're all sitting in our houses, all to death, all depressed, and our businesses were on the verge of going bankrupt. Yeah, it was... I, I think at some point, and I don't think it's going to be in the too distant, uh, too, too much into the distance, someone will do an analysis of all that. I mean, our economy got fucked. Oh, Sorry God. to use technical terms and big words on your case. <laughs> My uh, language, Frank. And, you know, the hospitality sector, as you say, uh, absolutely devastated. The events industry, I mean, our business lost hundreds of thousands of pounds. And, you know, as you rightly say, the government are sort of partying and cracking over, open the Prosecco in number 10. So you're obviously fed up and you weren't on your own. Lots of people who as I say, within that sector, particularly in these independents, who thought this is just too hard. Um, so it's up for sale. What you happened? Know, so what happened was, so during lockdown, I done quite a lot with the news channels as well to say, to shout and use my voice to say, this has got, this got, got to be changed. You can't do this to us. You can't expect us to carry on. Oh, it's just, so yeah, so I went on and had murder with Boris probably every other day. I suffered from major depression during lockdown as well. I'd gone from, I'd just finished doing that TV show. I had been all over the country doing work. And then to be locked in my house and not have anything to do. I've never not worked from the age of 13, Frank. So I had a major, major breakdown. Like, couldn't get out of bed. Oh, it was just horrible. I'd feel like, felt like I had had control, my life taken away from me. So, yeah, I suffered badly. Um, and my kids still went to school as well because Graydon's got ADHD. He was still allowed to go to school and then they let the other two go, so I didn't even have my kids. I was literally sitting in the office like, oh, God, what am I supposed to do here? Um, but I had just opened the hotel and there was people who were homeless, so I gave that over and let the hotel be used for people to have accommodation or... Um, people who were suffering, who could have been at risk in domestic violence relationships, locked in the house. I opened up the center for that as well. I went away and done work with the MOJ. I done two contracts for them um, and done some consultancy work because I had to keep myself busy or I would have literally, I don't know what would have happened, I would have went around the twist because it's just not me to sit at home. It's not, it's not in my DNA. Come back I just think the way that sector was treated, I just didn't want to be involved in it anymore. I was like, no one gives a shit. You know, literally, no one gives a monkeys about hospitality sector and the amount of money that's generated by this sector into the economy. So I had to meet me in a twist again, um, didn't I? So come back to it. And all of a sudden, we've gone two years of nothing. And then you just press play and 5,000 people were back in. It was pandemonium. I had to deal with all the staff again. I was just like... I don't want to do this anymore. I was like, you know, I'm out. So I put the sands in up for sale. And the viewing started coming in. And the office were on the table. And I was just like, no, I don't want to sell to them. And in the end, the estate agent said, 
I need to meet him. Yeah, so I went in and I was like, hi. He was like, I'm wasting my time here, aren't I? I was like, why? He was like, because you don't want to sell, do you? And it transpired that I actually didn't. Yeah. I was like, look, I am really sorry. I had paid them enough time free, so it didn't feel too bad. I was like, look, do you know what? As time's gone on, I'm totally back in the swing of it. So I was like, no, I don't. So he's like, take it down then. I was like, okay, thanks very much for your time. See you later out the door. Um, I couldn't relinquish the control over it. It was something that I hadn't finished. I hadn't finished with it. Um, so yeah, I'm back to normal now. And I've got big plans coming, major things coming are just around the corner. We've just done a deal on something that's going to be phenomenal. <coughs> Um, still, oh, I haven't mentioned Vitality Homes neither, have I? No. So, which is a big part of my life. So, members of my family have suffered from drinking drug addiction. Um, the father of my children, you know, he, he does, I'm not speaking of the attorney, he talks about it openly as well. He suffered massively with a cocaine problem. Oh, Frank, I took him everywhere trying to get him help and literally... Even put him in a rehab and we're still getting drugs dropped off at the rehab. Um, coming out of rehab as well, I just found it. There was no bridge. You come out of a rehab and they put you back into the circumstances and situation that made you want to take drugs in the first place. And it was costing the council probably between anything between 25 and 32,000 pounds to put you through rehab. What a waste of money because it's just a revolving door scenario. So I knew there was a need, again, to bridge that gap, to get people from out of rehab and to get abstinence underneath the belt where they felt strong enough to go back into society and to be able to have the strength to say no and manage their addiction. Because addiction never goes away, Frank. It's just a, ma a management plan in place. Um, so I had this another idea. Oh, God. And good old controversial Kate Stewart finds a site in Waverley. I went and headhunted a pioneer in recovery, Jackie Johnson Lynch. She has won it, got an OBE from the Queen for what she does. And I headhunted her. I was like, right, I don't know how to do it, but this is what I want to do. We got a brilliant staff team on board, finds a perfect location. And then somebody decided to go around and tell everyone it was a site for paedophiles. Yeah. And the next minute, the building was getting smashed up. I got warned not to go to planning. It was all over the newspapers. It was an absolute nightmare. It was probably one of the hardest things I've done on that. Um, they were like, okay, don't go to planning because there was old women saying that I need burning at the stake. I was like, God, I'm trying to help people, but people didn't understand, you see, and scaremongering again. So there was big meetings held in the golf club, uh, the cricket club down there, and like a thousand people had turned up like to do it. Adamant it wasn't going to happen. And I was adamant that I believe everyone deserves a second and third chance. You can't be. You can't say. Addiction can happen to anyone. Some people who've come to stay with us in Vitality have been solicitors, have been pro real professional. It can strike at any time. It's a tool as well because alcohol is so widely available. And it was like, you sell alcohol, but you're trying to rescue people as well. So I was, um, but anyway, I said, I will prove to you that I will make this work. And it's a major success. 
The war councillor said it was the best thing to come out of Wave of Tree in 2020. It's been discussed in Parliament as an uh, example of recovery. We've got 28 beds. Some of the stories have been phenomenal. The local community absolutely love it. The lads go around and cut the people's grass. We go on litter picking. Some of them work in the community hub. The residents get invited in and they have breakfast mornings with our residents. And it's been hugely, hugely successful. And I'm really, really glad and happy that we changed people's perspective on addiction. You know, people just need a little bit of help. A guy, he was from Sheffield Ways. He went into the woods. And this is the God's honest truth. This has been in the press. The lads will tell you themselves. He came, he was going in the woods. He had a rope and he was going to kill himself. As he tied it around the tree, he gets a phone call to say there's a bed for you in Vitality Homes. And he thought, you know what, I'll have one, one last crack of the whip. And he came and he was with us for 18 months. He's moved out. He's got a girlfriend. He's got his own business. Um, and he's absolutely smashing it. So it just shows that if I would have give up on that and would have said, okay, fine, I'm not doing it. There's just one example of a life he would have lost. So the message is, please, if you believe in something, don't let other people deter you from your path and keep fighting for what you believe in and you will show people and wipe their eye. What a fantastic story. Um, I'm tempted to end it there because it was such a fantastic story, but I can't end it because I want you to tell us about your experience of going back to school. And, you know, this is coming from somebody who you've already confessed didn't find school particularly stimulating, even though you were bright, you wanted to learn, but you wanted to learn on your terms rather than the terms set down by some white hall official who, as I said earlier, just thinks everyone should get churned out bloody A to C's in particular subjects. So Channel 4 approach you, you approach, you oh, come up with no. that idea. So I've done quite a, quite a lot of television work. I've actually just done two new programmes. That one is out in two weeks. I've just done one with Grace and Perry. I've just done another one where I took my hooligan children to live in a castle. <laughs> it was a little bit of a, it was <laughs> called a new money, old money. So that's out in the spring. But this one, yet yeah, they approached me and there was me, Stephen Barlett, done it. A guy who owns a printing business, which is hugely successful, like, worldwide. So I was like, oh, okay then. And I only do things that intrigue me. I'm not going on to do a programme where they follow me around and it's bullshit, basically. I'll only do something if it's an experience or if it's good for me. And money can't buy opportunity. So I had to go and live in Sheffield again, four kids. I was just like, oh, God. And I was living down there for, like, Eight days at a time, I'd come in for three, back down. Got invited into the school. Pandemonium. That's the only word I can use to describe it. Understaffed. So many different children from so many backgrounds. I think there were 13 different languages spoken in the school. Some classes, I had one teacher, 60, 60 kids. One woman standing at the front with all these different diversities. Um... How the hell is she supposed to do it? She's standing at the front getting totally ignored. And I was one of them kids in the in the class ignoring the, this teacher. And to see her from the teacher's perspective as well, I felt so out ass. And I felt like slapping myself for being <laughs> such a cow in school because they are trying their best. They are given this 
curriculum and say, you have to work from that. The majority, I'd say 99%, don't agree with it. They're all for reform and changing things, but they're not heard. Um, and there's so many children falling through the cracks. I actually went and gave the school money to employ more teaching assistants. I give them this annual salary and said, you need to employ them because I knew that by doing that, it's helped more children um, break the breakthrough. But yeah, it was it was just a nightmare. There was just fights. I was, you know, got old scally arsey and me, I'm in the middle, get off each other. <laughs> and she just sort of like splitting them apart. Yeah, joke. And did you go joke. in as a teaching assistant or what yeah. was the sort of role that you were playing? Oh, Frank, I went in as a teaching assistant, right? And I'm thick as pig shit. <laughs> I really am. So I'm as the teaching assistant and the kids are asking me for help on the lesson. I'm like, miss, what's this? And I'm like, 26. <laughs> so they're all writing down 26. And then the teacher stands up and they, the answer was 38. They're all looking at me. I'm like, <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, so yeah, it was hard. I didn't, like, I can't remember none of it, Frank. And like, my, my seven-year-olds are coming home, we're home, we're from school, right? And I don't know the answers. I'm just like, oh God. And you know, I am not, I'm not that type. I'm not educated at all in that, that sense of the word. I am streetwise, I am savvy, I'm a problem solver, I think on my feet. And also I know I have got a duty from being successful to give back. So September, kids were going back to school. And I was speaking to someone who works with me and she works in a school as well. So she just works match days in the center. And she was telling me about children turning up to school, the uniforms got holes in, the mums haven't got no money, um, they were getting picked on. And everyone was saying, you know, there's a big thing as well about uniforms. Yet they should be in place 100% because then everyone is uniform. But at the same time, you know all this bullshit about blazers that cost 100 quid and all of the branded stuff, the kids have got to have their thing. I think that should be abolished. I think it should be plain, white polo shirt or white shirt, red or navy jumper and grey pants that you can buy from anywhere. Um, because people can't afford it, Frank. And not wearing their own clothes, that's a no-go as well, because some kids will come in with better clothes and oh, you haven't got the latest thing. Well, anyway, I then, I spoke to the ward council in Anfield, Billy, I was like, what are you doing about uniforms in the city council? And they were like, nothing, nothing really, but we do, the people who would qualify for grants. And I was like, well, I'm not. So I went and bought the 200, 200 school uniforms for the local kids in Anfield, give them all to the ward council. I was like, you dish them out because I'm not getting involved in that. But we put messages out and said, okay, if you need a uniform, they are available to you. And then again, with all of this, you know, heating bills, which is a load of bullshit again, because the, the stocks have just dropped in national gas, like plummeted, but you're still getting charged astronomical fees to put your lecking gas on again making the rich richer and the poor poorer. So I opened the Sandon as a heat hub and gave free meals every Tuesday and every Thursday to local people. Well, it was all over the city, actually. Um, and over the, uh, November, December, January, three-month periods, we give over 2,000 meals away. So people could come over Tuesday and Thursday, bring the kids from school, put the bouncy castle up, had loads of things for the kids to do. And two nights a week, we took the worry away of having to feed your kids and having to have the heating on and stay warm. And 
being from a council estate and being an entrepreneur and having a little bit of a platform, I think it's important that we don't forget that we need to help others. People are not as fortunate as us and I haven't been as successful. And, you know, yet they might get benefits, but then benefits go absolutely nowhere. Believe me, there is genuine people out there. Because I think as well, people have got this, okay, there is some of them, Frank, and I have seen it with me own two hours, standing outside smoking ciggies and bringing your kids to the food bank. It's like, get your, get your priorities right. You can go and get nicotine patches and everything else. So I've, I've had loads of arguments over this. But people go, oh, you know, well, they're getting Botox. Yet there is out there. And I don't agree with that, Frank. Get your priorities right, because I would literally cut my ear off to feed my kids if I had to. I have, and I've been open about this as well. Sometimes my cash flow has been shit in business and I have took my jewellery off and gone to the pawn shop to make sure my staff are paid because all my bills are paid. The tax office can fucking waste. I don't care about them. <laughs> but the normal average Joe on the streets, literally, I will not let them not be paid. I've never, an independent retailer, I've never owed a penny. I've never been late on my staff wage days ever in my life. HMRC, as I said, can piss off and I'll go on a payment plan with them. Or, you know, but yeah, I just think all entrepreneurs, we have a social responsibility. Let's help other people. Let's put our hands on. Let's help as many people get up to, to be elevated as possible. Wow. What a fantastic story. What a fantastic way to end yeah. the podcast. We could talk another 10 hours and we'll continue to talk um, over the next, uh, well, whenever we see each other. We are going to get Kate to a live downtown event uh, at some point this year as well. She's kindly agreed to do that. Listen, it's been fascinating. Um, I thought I knew your story, but you told me things even I didn't know. No, I've known you for many years. Uh, and listen, it's not over yet. No. I'm sure that there's even bigger and better things to come Kate Stewart's way. Fascinating. Thanks for being in the downtown day. That was Kate Stewart with me, Frank McKenna, the chair and group. No, no, not the chair and group. The chief executive and group chair of downtown and business. Uh, this has been episode five. Yes, I'm being nodded at by our producer, Chris, uh, of our um, winning women series. And uh, yeah, it's just been brilliant. So thanks, Katie. Thanks for having me. Cheers.